This episode is powered by denmeditation.com. The meditation is the primary focus. The bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal Rabinowitz. I am your host and the founder of Den Meditation. Today, we welcome Tom Cronin. I am so excited to speak with him. We tried to get him on actually in 2019 to 2020. And then as you all know, we took a little break. Um, So I'm glad to have him here. And part of the reason I wanted to talk to him is he reminds me a little bit of me and my story. You know, he was in the corporate world. He was in the world of finance for 26 years in a very lucrative position, very high level. And then he chose to leave it. And he chose to leave it to become a meditation teacher. He's a transformational coach. He's a speaker. He's an author of six books. He's produced a movie. He does it all. His goal is to really help you find the truer and better version of yourself. Um, I love this conversation. We just kind of chat about everything, but really at the core, um, we just get to this idea of what we're holding onto so tightly that is really getting in the way of us living our true lives. Trust me, it is powerful because multiple times I was like, oh shit, I have way more work to do on myself because I could viscerally feel how we actually have to go so much deeper and letting go of constructs of everyday society that we hold on so tightly. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you too have a visceral feeling. Let us know. Um, Please go leave us a review. If you can, drop any comments. We always love to hear from you, but definitely give us a review. That always helps us out and take a listen to this episode. And remember to stay tuned for that personal practice at the end. Um, I want to start with just two questions right off the bat, and then we'll just get into wherever this conversation takes us. But if you could use one word to describe yourself five years ago, and then another word, or maybe it's the same word, to describe you today, what would those words be? That is a really amazing question. I would probably have to use two words for both of them. One would be uh, less humble five years ago and more humble today. <laughs> mm, I like that. You're like, I need the less and I need the more, but it's all around. Hum- That's fascinating. Okay. So let's talk about like humility and being humble. What do you feel like has shifted for you in the last five years? Because five years ago, you were very much into this work too, which is why I like that you said that because, you know, I think sometimes people feel like if you work within the meditation or wellness or spiritual space, it's like, poof, you push a button and you're this like, perfect human who's completely enlightened. And it's like one of my pet peeves a little bit. I'm like, no, we're all fallible humans, but talk about it. So for you, this five-year trajectory has to do with kind of humility and a little bit of humble pie. So I'm curious. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really hard in this world to seem humble whilst at the same time trying to self-promote your own business. You know, uh, when we're working for a computer company or, you know, a smash repair company, you know, it's easy to promote that on your socials, on your marketing strategy, um, without having to egoically be perceived in a particular way. But when it's you, that's the business, um, you have to sort of constantly put yourself out there. So firstly, it can be really incongruent sometimes because, you know, you have to let people know that, Hey, I do speaking gigs and show photos of yourself doing speaking gigs, which can be perceived to be not humble and to be seen to be kind of self-promoting or egoic and things like that. So it's a really fine line that we have to walk as conscious leaders in this world, trying to, at the same time, 
grow our business and get our message out to the market that we've got these offerings that people can, you know, continue to engage in. Um, but I think also in this spiritual self-development, personal development space, transformational space is also that tendency for spiritual elitism or spiritual egoism, which means that as we become more awake, more accessible to that divine knowledge, that incredible, you know, internal wisdom or, you know, infinite wisdom, then while we still have some degree of ego, which of course is the nature for all of us, except someone that might be completely in a non-dualistic state, which is not me, um, then there's that tendency to have your ego latch on to that spiritual awakening experience and try to kind of own it and, and be, I guess, um, inflated because of it. And this is where we see a huge conflict happening in people that are waking up and still have ego, which is most of us um, in this space, there's still going to be traces of ego to some degree. And then that's that ego that can sort of latch on to this spiritual awakening and go, oh, I'm more superior, I'm this or I'm that. And so we see, or oh, my way's better, my tradition's better, my path's better, my meditation's better. And I definitely see that a lot in my tradition that I was comes came through. And I know I probably have been seen to be having a little bit of that as well at times. So I think what's happening for me anyway, personally, is just the work towards enlightenment is actually not to gain something more or new. It's actually to be less and less and less of what you were. Mm. And so when I say less humble and more humble is really just hopefully in the work that I've been doing over the last five years to have less of that ego construct um, and more of what is already inherently there, which is, enlightenment or divinity. I think that's a really amazing and beautiful statement that it's the goal is to have less and less because I feel like that inherently kind of goes against structurally what we've all been just taught, even if it was never directly taught to you. I feel like just by looking around in the systems and how we grow up, the idea of less and less to be the goal I think it would be really hard for people to unravel a lot of stories and patterns in order to even kind of understand it in the first place and then be okay with striving for that. I mean, even in our vocabulary, striving for less, it almost feels like those are antithetical to each other. So it's, it's fascinating. Talk a little bit more about that because I think that's a very important statement that you made. Yeah. So the ego, which is our identity, our personality, our persona, our construct, um, it has by definition a characteristic, which is lack. And so that ego is always driven for more. And our society, which is indoctrinated by people from egos, um, have created this, this indoctrination, this program that you must have more. And our entire economic system is built on that. Our entire school system is built on that. Our entire business system is built on that. Everything is built on the premise that we must have more. And so that constant drive, and it can be desire for more experiences, desire for more acquisitions, desire for more money, desire for more success, ambition, all of that is only a construct of the ego. Divinity can't want more. Divinity can't go from one mm. place to another place to have a better experience. Um, that's purely just an ego craving something that it doesn't have. And so ironically and interestingly, to be truly full can only be experienced when we're truly empty of that egoic mm. construct. Because if there's a trace of the ego left, even in spiritual circles, we see a lot of egos craving for more experiences. 
and I want to have plant medicine. I want to have this. I want to have that. And that's, it's this constant craving to have more experience. Now there's nothing wrong with the spiritual journey and the spiritual practices. I teach them myself. The challenge is when we get so attached to the seeking and the craving to have a high, higher experiences, that becomes the conundrum and the barrier to having what already is, which is the ultimate experiences, which is fullness of being. Being is already full. Divinity is already full. But we can't have fullness while we have emptiness, sorry, while we have lack of an ego. And so this is the interesting journey. There's a great book by Ajashanti, The End of Your World, and another book by Richard Sylvester mm. called I Hope You Die Soon which is that it's the part of you that's craving and longing and wanting more that has to actually be the ultimate death of that ego construct to really have the fullness of being, which is the I mean, complete the opposite of what we're taught of in our society. A thousand percent. That's why I'm saying for people and for people who've been on the path, they might be like, yeah, 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 I understand it. But I can already even feel, and I study this stuff. I teach this stuff. So none of this that you're saying to me is like different, but I can even feel resistance in my body as you're talking about it, which is fascinating. I'm like, oh, wow. Even like when I'm really listening, that is a lot of unraveling. It's just a lot. And so for people to be like, oh yeah, I'm there. It's like, no, no, no. Cause like what you're saying, it's the opposite of what we're taught in our society. So yeah. it's, it's so ingrained in our cellular system. I mean, we were born into it that, I mean, what you said, divinity doesn't have to go anywhere else because it's already full. I mean, what an incredible idea that you were born completely with enough. So you actually don't have to be looking around for more. And we know the, that, but yet yeah, it's yeah, really hard right. to do. <laughs> it's it's hard mean, to let go of the Talk a little bit about craving. how society... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so hard to let go of the thing that's craving. Um, and it's the thing that we identify with most from the moment we came out of the womb, we were craving more and we've always wanted more love, more affection, more, uh, attention, more identity, more accolade, more possessions. And so to, to not, uh, this all started for me. Uh, I've been doing the spiritual work for a long time. I've been studying Vedic philosophy and transcendental meditation, Vedic meditation, and I still noticed that I, I still had this experience of fear. And uh, it was this thing that was deep within me. You know, I never really got the anger thing. And because my, my dosha in Ayurveda, if anyone's familiar with Ayurveda, I'm a vata dosha. So the, the tendency for a vata to be out of balance is to, to experience fear or anxiety. And so um, that was still sort of lingering. And I, I really wanted to address that. And I, I was looking for really high level sort of spiritual teacher that could help me with this final little pesky trace that was lingering in there. And so, um, I found this great Zen master and the first session we had was, you know, I, I'm here cause I want to get rid of this fear that I still experience. And he says, no, I'm like, what do you mean? No, he goes, we're not getting rid of the fear. We're getting rid of the thing that has fear embedded within it. And that's your Ooh. eye. And I was like, whoa, okay. Now that started one of the toughest years of my, uh, sort of spiritual journey uh, and spiritual practice after being along that path for 25 years or so. You're going to talk about what he, yeah. Talk mm -hmm. about what he meant when he said, and that's your eye. Did he mean the I like, yeah, the ego, the eye, um, the construct, uh, in his words called the occupant, uh, so that the mm -hmm. ego construct is the thinking mind and feeling body. Ultimately the thinking mind is motivated by the feeling body. We think to get feelings and what we crave are feelings. And so that's what we're craving for. And all of our experiences, the only reason we get on a little tin can plane and fly from one part of the world to another part of the world to sit on a deck chair and drink a pina colada is to increase the sensation in the eye. 
um, mm. to go to a shopping mall and fill up some bags with some new clothes is to increase the sensation of the eye. The eye is constantly craving a sensation. And that's why we do all the things that we do is to enhance the feeling level in the eye. Now that's because the eye, when that feeling level gets enhanced, because we buy the new Abercrombie and Fitch jumper, or we go to, um, you know, to loom <laughs> and sit on a deck chair and have a pina colada. It's because the eye wants to feel that, that enhanced sensation, but then that enhanced sensation wears away very, very quickly as a result of that experience or acquisition. And so then the eye has to go back for another craving and another craving and another acquisition or um, experience. And so what ultimately is the absolute truth, the fundamental truth is that your divinity, which is omnipresent and omnipresence can't exclude you. And you as that unlimited, unbounded, um, all-inclusive experience of, of, of oneness seemingly broke that symmetry to come down temporarily as you with an incredible, um, an incredible characteristic that you'll never be fulfilled as you whilst you're, you don't realize that you're divinity. And so you're going to be hungry and chase and chase and chase, and you're going to look in places that you can't find the thing that you're looking for until eventually you do look for the thing that you're looking for. But the looking that you're looking for, the, the looker that's the seeking um, that's ultimately the thing you have to let go of in the end. It's the most incredible design that universe ever came up with. So the, the seeking is you seeking you, but to actually find you, you have to let go of the thing that's seeking. And why, and I have two questions about this, but one sticking on the universe's riddle, because I think it's hilarious. Sorry, <laughs> I just decided to come in for this big universal riddle. Like why, like why the I, like why are we, what is the, purpose do we even know do you have any inkling through your studies do what is the purpose of the coming here to kind of leave our divinity just to remember it like you know I, it takes me back to a, 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 um, I had this beautiful framed picture of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in my house and uh, I showed a fellow Vedic meditation teacher this beautiful picture and the picture frame in the glass was a little crack at the bottom left hand corner and they said, oh, you've got a spirit line in here. That's so beautiful. I said, what do you mean there's spirit line? I said, well, the Navajo Indians recognize that the nature of perfection is that it seeks imperfection and imperfection seeks perfection. And so because you've got imperfection in this picture and it's no longer perfect, it won't attract imperfection and, and the, the breaking of the symmetry. And the Navajo Indians would always put a flaw in everything they made so as to not attract some uh, some flaw, it's already got the flaw in it. So therefore you don't have, it won't attract some chaos. And mm. this is the nature of the universe is that it, it has perfection and it breaks that symmetry to experience form and formless, uh, the formlessness in form in the space time phenomenon so that it can experience something other than pure perfection because pure perfection itself is monotonously boring. Uh, and so it, it breaks that symmetry experience, something other than itself comes into this seemingly identity that we call us so that we can re-experience ourselves eventually back into the formlessness and the perfection. That I love that idea of let's create its perfection right away by making sure it's imperfect. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that yeah, is amazing. who we are. It's, I mean, that's, ex that's right. And that is who we are. It's like, we are imperfect, perfect beings. My second question off of this was, you said in the beginning, then that began, that launched the beginning of like one of the hardest years for you. So what did that mean for you to actually not get rid of the fear, but get rid of the I, to get rid of the ego construct? Like, what did that mean for you? How did you even go about starting to do that? And what did it yeah, look like? It's, it's quite a brutal process. Um, 
and some would say it's spiritual bypassing. Yeah, it's very, My stomach hurt listening to you talk about it. <laughs> it's a very challenging process. And it's starting to recognize, firstly, what is your truth? What is the absolute you, which is, let's just call it divinity or presence or being, which is, um, and even as Eckhart Tolle says, you know, there's only one reality, which is consciousness watching this moment. In Sanskrit, it's called silent, uh, the silent witness or Sakshi Kutashta. So the only fundamental reality is that there's just consciousness watching this moment, nothing else. Everything else is constructs of your mind and feeling body. So there's just this awareness in this moment, silently watching. And then in front of that, let's just say there's blue sky and in front of that is clouds. And those clouds are constantly changing and moving and shifting and shaping. So that's our feeling and physical and mental body. And so that's the ego construct. So the first step is to identify what's egoic and what's pure or what's, what's absolute truth. And then start to go along the, the journey of the practice is I'm not this, I'm that. Now that's a really challenging thing because we've identified with being this, which is the ego, the thinking mind and feeling body. So to say, I'm not this, I'm that, which is just pure divinity, non-change. Um, it's quite confronting and quite challenging. And we have what's called the dark night of the soul. It's a, a very sad and uh, at times lonely place to no longer be you and to no longer be um, all the things that you had within it, which is the fears, the drives, the ambitions, the desires, the lusts, all of that starts to sort of wane and starts to drop away. Now, I'm not fully stabilized in that as, as like some other people, like the Adyashantis of the world, but that non-duality um, state, non-dualistic state um, is very liberating and very pure and very freeing but at the same time um, leaves us in a, in a state that we lose a lot of the things that we, we, we were favoring and enjoying before, which is the full spectrum of human experience. So when you start watching your Netflix, the reason we watch Netflix is because we want those pixels on that color TV screen and the sound moving through the speakers to change our state, which means we're losing our sovereignty. And we're letting that TV screen or that Spotify music or that podcast that I'm listening to, or that book that I'm reading to somehow stir some feeling in my body. That's no longer, that wasn't there before. That's why we pay our subscriptions to Netflix. So we want a sovereign to lose our sovereignty willingly through this level of entertainment, through the shopping mall, through the acquisitions, through the flight to the Bahamas. Um, and so in this state where we're completely sovereign in that we're unmovable and unruffable in Sanskrit, it's called moksha freedom from the binding effects of life. Um, now, some people would say, well, why would you want that? Well, what prevails is not just an empty state of hollowness. What prevails is extreme bliss and love and joy that's unchangeable. Mm -hmm. So, um, which is, of course, the ultimate um, quality of divine. And that's the ultimate quality of us. It's just that we, for a period of time, really relish having the huge spectrum of human experience, which is okay as well. Talk about how that was painful for you, like in a practical sense, like as you're disengaging from, and I get it. Like when I talk to my students about it, a lot of times I use it kind of in the way of roles. Like when you start really looking at how many roles you're playing mm -hmm. and that ultimately you're really no role, you know, and when you start doing the list of the roles, like you really let yourself write that down. Oh my God, it's so long. Like you think it's going to be four, but then it just keeps going. Like you said, I'm not this, I am that it's really long and it can be a very scary process because I think for some people, like you were inferring, it almost feels like you're free falling because these roles kind of keep you um, tethered a little bit. And when you start cutting those 
cords and those tethers, like it, it can be anxiety inducing in the beginning, because like you said, you, you don't get these things that you're used to having that make you feel who you are and firmly planted on the ground. But talk about for you, practically speaking, as you started cutting those cords, cutting those tethers, cutting those rolls, um, what did that practically look like for you? And that was hard. Yeah, it, it was hard on so many levels. And you described it really well about the roles. It was like the rug that you've been standing and building your life on has been pulled out from underneath you. And it's like, I thought I was this. I thought for many, many decades that this is who I am, but it's not who I am. And now there's a realization that I'm not that. I'm not this, I'm that. And so that was at first really um, disconcerting. It was really unsettling. It was very um, bleak in some respects. It's, you know, there's a beautiful book by St. John of the Cross, Dark Night of the Soul, that talks about this bleakness that happens when you lose the identities, the constructs, the ideas. The, but with that as well, you lose your ambitions, your drives, your desires. It's like if there's just this moment and I'm in the absolute space of this moment, then what drives me? And that, that hunger, that thing that we have that is like our fuel to not have that is really like, for me, particularly being, you know, a little bit of an alpha male, particularly from the finance industry after 26 years. And um, it was, yeah, quite a bleak time, I would say, um, because you have to let go of one thing before the fullness of the this experience happens. You can't have the fullness of the experience whilst there's still traces of the thing that has the ambitions, the drives and the lack within it. There has to be, this goes first before this comes and this, this window of time before the, the, the full experience of this starts to prevail leaves us with this really, uh, it's a very challenging path to cross, um, this space of no man's land to cross that threshold. And um, it can be quite, quite confronting and it's not uh, some work that I would, uh, I would definitely would be, you'd be needing a very, supportive teacher to take you across that threshold. It needs definitely a very good guide to move you across that threshold. What was the hardest? Do you, or maybe you don't remember, or maybe you do. Was there a, did you get to a point in it where you remember specifically some part of the identity was harder to let go of than the other parts? Uh, yeah, I think that for me was, there's <laughs> so much in that, this word ambition, because it's really ambition is that essence that, I can be more, I can do more, I can achieve more, I can get more, I can experience more. And look, I still have some of that. You know, I, I've got a lot of things that I'm creating and manifesting and looking to create on the horizon. Um, and that's driven by ambition. So just to preface all of this, there's still some ego constructs that's driving me and I can feel that and I like that. But there's a lot more of switching back into just presence and just being here. So, um, I can identify when there's ambition there, but there was this time when I was doing really, really intense work where um, there was just none of that drive, none of that longing for me being, you know, I like that. It was kind of like my fuel that was like why I get out of bed in the morning and what keeps me sort of pushing for greatness in the relative field and to lose that and to just be sitting in presence. And I would find myself for days, um, at times, uh, just sitting and just finding myself just sitting with complete bliss, complete ecstasy at watching fluffy clouds move across the blue sky. There was just no need to have to be anywhere or do anything or be anyone because the ecstasy and the bliss of this moment in this space of just presence was so 
incredibly ultimate. There was nothing that could supersede that. And I, I'd done a lot of meditation work around really stabilizing that state of presence. And then I'd come out of that and go, okay, let's turn Tom back on. <laughs> and that's, but it took a while to get <laughs> well, to there, to get to that state. You know, it brings up a very good point. It's, you know, it's really hard sometimes. Like I, I teach and study, you know, Kundalini. And one of the things that attracted to me, it to, attracted me to it um, was always like, it's a householder's yoga, you know, using those words, meaning like, how do you bring it into the everyday? And so it is tricky when you think about these things, you know, if you were like, okay, from this point on, I'm moving to the monastery and this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life, probably in some ways easier to achieve once, you know, you go through your steps to be able to achieve that state, but to be the householder, Tom, to be the person who's coming, you know, every day and, you know, having to live by the societal construct, meaning pay for mortgage or rent or whatever it is, it is so much harder to um, keep that state. Yeah, you know, we're in a really interesting time on the planet right now. It's a phenomenal time because that state was never able to be integrated into the world. It never has been. You know, the, the world was so incongruently different. Um, you know, we're talking tribal, primal, um, rape and pillage, you know, for thousands of years, you know, really quite brutal times on the planet where the collective was nowhere near the capacity to have a daily in conversation or a podcast that they can listen to from someone around the other side of the world that was talking about these things. You know, it was so far apart, the enlightened people on the planet and the non-enlightened people on the planet that they had to go and live very exclusively. They couldn't integrate into that world. So they literally lived in monasteries and ashrams and hilltops in Spain and Italy and Tibet because their world view and their vibration was so different and so incongruent with the rest of the world that they literally would be, you know, they just couldn't coexist. Whereas now what we're finding, and this is really a threshold that we're only crossing in the last 10, 15 years, it's quite phenomenal. It started 50 years ago in the 60s, 70s and 80s when, you know, things like Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and Paramahansa Yogananda weren't some of the first early adoptees, Swami Rama, you know, early adopters had moved from India to the West and started to bring this knowledge to the West. And it was just trickling like a tiny little trickle of the practices, the modalities and, and the teachings. But what we saw, that was like the first stages of integration of this knowledge. But what we're seeing now is this huge, because of technology and social media and this podcast, this incredible explosion and exponential levels of growth of this knowledge getting into the world. That's why we've got yoga and Kundalini yoga and plant medicine and um, meditation really starting to penetrate the collective, the mainstream world. And so now we've got people who in just a short period of time, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, are now starting to reach states of non-duality and enlightenment and still keep their jobs as brokers or judges or lawyers or real estate agents or be mums and dads. And so we're seeing this incredible pioneering of a new way forward for humanity that makes these states integrative and possible for the householder, which is, there's no blueprint for that. We're kind of creating this as we go. So talk about that. So you came from the finance world and how many years ago was that? I mean, you were, I left that was finance. your thing. I was, yeah, I was there for 26 years, started the same year as Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, 1987, and left um, 10 years ago and uh, have been doing this since then, teaching meditation and coaching since then. And what was your, was there a crisis moment for you of leaving? Because 
you know, it's a big, it's a big shift. It's a big change. There was two sort of moments in that trajectory. There was 10 years in the industry, just badass Wolf of Wall Street, just loads of drugs and drinking, partying, and very hedonistic and narcissistic. That led to a major crisis, which was my um, uh, sort of first major sort of rashy or dark night of the soul that happened at the age of 29. So I had a kind of nervous breakdown. And so at that point I was, um, you know, pretty messed up and that's when I found meditation. So that was the first stage in the, in the journey. And then I started and what do you meditating. Feel like you had, yes, what was your nervous breakdown? Like what caused that? Like, yes, obviously we're doing a lot of drugs. Was there something that was the tipping point? Um, it was a culmination over time, you know, of the, the body, you know, the body reaches a bifurcation point where we put it under, it under immense pressure. Everything does, you know, a steel beam gets a bifurcation point. They test this in engineering terms to see at what point is that steel beam not able mm -hmm. to take the bridge load. And so for me, after 10 years of extreme exhaustion and, you know, really bad habits and bad choices, my nervous system literally collapsed. So they had a lead up to that of a lot of anxiety and panic attacks and depression, which I didn't realize. I didn't know what it was. I was just a basket case and getting worse. Um, some days curled up in, in a ball on my bed or in a cubicle at work and not able to go to a lunch or something. Uh, and this kind of exacerbated until one day it, it was just the, the whole thing just blew up and I was just, a, I couldn't go to work. I was just a, I had a, a collapse. I fell on the bathroom floor. I had a nervous breakdown that morning and was, yeah, I was in an uncontrollably crying state. I was just, a, it was just a complete mess. And I went to a doctor and were he you, explained to me that I was having a nervous breakdown. Were, were you in a relationship at the time, single, living by yourself? Yeah, I was with my partner. My, it was my wife now. And uh, she found me on the bathroom floor. Um, I was, I thought I was having a heart attack. And at that point I was so depressed and dark about who I'd become and the life I was living. You know, I was supposed to go to do journalism at university and I was traveling the world before um, I was going to go to university. I took a gap year off school, which was a bit of a rite of passage for Australians because we live so far away from the rest of the world. We usually take a year off to travel and cover as many countries as possible. So I was equipped with my Walkman with Susie and the Banshees and uh, the Smiths and bands like that, listening to um, dark sort of um, emo music while reading books like The Stranger by Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre and um, Age of Reason. And, and I wanted to come back and after my travels, write for Time magazine and trying to denounce capitalistic greed and save the world from the bad guys and end up getting a job on a trading room floor. And all of my morals and compasses went out the window when I got put money in front of me. It was kind of crazy. And that led me into a really dark place over time as I realized I was getting a long, long way from my moral compass. And that's when I had like that. that was like a, do you feel like that was, a, I don't know, you know, I feel like sometimes we're on this earth and we're here to really kind of like remember who we are and kind of we get tested. Like, do you feel like that was like a moment, like that choice, you know, because it does feel very like you could have gone one way or the other. Um, were you even thinking about finance? No, not at all. No, it was, I literally had three months to fill in. I blew all my money traveling the world. So I needed some, some jobs to make some money before I went to uni. Uh, I had no interest in finance at all. I never even thought of it. I just basically opened up the Saturday morning paper, which had the employment section. This is going back into 1980, was it? 87, 86 at the time. And um, I had some months to fill in before uni started and I had no money. So I just uh, wrote off to like 10 different jobs that were in the paper. 
and landed this one. And it was a really high paying job for a young guy. I was only 19. So I just was like, wow, that sounds good. I'll quit after three months when uni starts. But when the three month window came around for me to go to university, um, they gave me, well, I was on probation. So it was a little trial period and I was really, really good at it. And they actually called me, um, my boss called me his golden boy. And I was really fast and really efficient, surprisingly, mm. at doing the deals. And so they gave me a pay rise and a bonus. And I'm like, holy heck, like, I'll just put off for one more year. Just, I'll just, one more year, I'll just do this and I'll save a bit more money. And then at the end of that one year, every year they get a, you get a pay rise and a bonus, right? That bonus is a percentage of your earnings. And so the bonus was ridiculous and the pay rise was ridiculous. And so at this stage, I'm 20 and I'm on a six figure salary. They gave me a sports car and a corporate Amex card. And I'm just like, dude, this is too good to be true. So I'll just one more year, one more year. And they call it the golden handcuffs. And so next thing you know, it, you're there for 26 years. Yep. Wow. And so you never went to uni. Never made it to uni. And were you always the golden boy? Like, were you always your boss's kind of go-to? I went through different bosses because, you know, people change and positions change. But I, I, w I was, you know, I sustained the career in the one company for 26 years. And it wasn't because I was a terrible broker. So I obviously was doing something right <laughs> to, to, to obviously stay there. But um, it became very apparent over time. You know, what happened was when I learned to meditate, it was a game changer for me. It was literally because the deepness of the transcendental meditation was so powerful. It literally got rid of all those anomalies, all my stresses, the anxiety, depression, panic attacks all went away very quickly. And so I went back into that job for 16 more years, which is quite phenomenal because, um, you know, there I was just meditating, not drinking, not doing the drugs for 16 years, doing the job as a broker. And I just brought a very different slant to it, I guess. But it became you... very apparent that it was time to leave eventually. Did you make a conscious choice not to do the drinking or dr like, was it that much of a problem? You were like, I need to go free or was it something with the meditation that just made you feel like you didn't want it or need it anymore? Yeah. And this is why I like working with people with addictions because, um, why we're, we're addicted to something is because we're coming from lack and we're craving something. And that thing, whether it's gambling or sex or drinking or drugs, isn't really the thing that we're looking for. What we're looking for is the sensation that that thing gives us. Now, gambling didn't give me that thing. Gambling couldn't give me that high. Whereas things like, you know, drinking and drugs and sex could. So, um, so you, you, we all have different things that give us that high that trigger a sensation. Like I said, the ego is always looking for the sensation. It's not looking for gambling. It's not looking for drugs. It's looking for what that, that activity or that acquisition can give us We're really looking for the sensation. And so when we meditate, what happens, particularly with some styles of meditation more so than others, we get this really beautiful trickle of serotonin and oxytocin into our bloodstream. And now I was really addicted to ecstasy, which is MDMA. Now the MDMA is what triggers the release of large amounts of serotonin and oxytocin into the bloodstream. And so I love that feeling of the bliss chemicals that come from MDMA or ecstasy, but what I found really interesting when I started to do TM or Vedic meditation was that I started to get that experience after my meditation and during my meditation in a milder way, in a more regulated, more sustainable way. And it was quite phenomenal. And so what happens with a lot of those cravings is they just simply melt away. They drop away. And what you find is a purer state and a more profound state that is no longer needing that huge karmic, activity that has major consequences. There was just no karmic sort of consequences that would come from the meditation. Whereas 
if I had a night out on ecstasy, there was huge karmic consequences the next day that were very unpleasant, which led me to obviously in the end, a lot of depression and anxiety. So you've been meditating, you stayed in the job for 16 more years, and then you said it became very obvious. What was obvious for you? It was obvious that, um, there was a much more compelling and relevant path for me to be on than trying to work out where the, you know, a quarter point move in a 10 year bond might go. And so, um, when I started to, I did my teacher training while I was a broker and started teaching people, what was happening was that I, w- I was so affected and found such incredible benefits out of the meditation that I was referring a lot of people to teachers. A lot of my friends had done the teacher training that I initially had studied with. Um, we did a lot of advanced Vedic philosophy programs and I was referring a lot of people to my friends who were teachers and it was just becoming apparent that I look, I may as well just do the teacher training and start teaching <laughs> these people rather than referring them. So I did my teacher training and while I was a broker and I would teach after work, I'd finish work on a trading room floor and go to a studio that I had subleased in the city from some naturopaths and I would start teaching in the evenings. And it was just, it was just undeniable that this was something that I, I wanted to do more of and that I had a great capacity to do it well. So I had to work out, it took me a long time. It took me a good two years to try to work out how I was going to navigate that move out of being a broker on a substantial six figure salary into teaching meditation, which is not the greatest career move financially. Um, at that time. So, um, you know, I had a family of four to feed and a mortgage. So it was a bit tricky making that sort of, you know, transition, but it it just became so undeniable that I had to do it. Now your wife, I mean, since she was with you from the beginning, it sounds like, and she's seen the Mm. whole trajectory, what has it been like for her? Like when, when you guys, I'm sure have conversations about it for her to see the whole metamorphosis. I think the one thing is when you're sustained, you're weeping together for 30 years. So when you've been together for so long, you know, you kind of, um, it's like you just adapt to morph together along the way. So she's been making her journey as well. And kind of, we both inspire each other to find different tools and techniques and ways of doing things, read this book, try this podcast and be bouncing things that you're learning off, off each other all the way. So there's that really nice supportive process that comes on way. It's not like she was just in one state watching me go through this whole transition. This is the beautiful thing with a relationship, a relationship can thrive and have longevity if evolution is occurring within the relationship. That means that two people need to be evolving and they'll get a lot of support in that relationship from the universe. And so, um, it doesn't mean it's perfect by no means. Absolutely not. And, um, it means, you know, it just means that you've got tools at your disposal to help facilitate getting through those difficult times. Cause you're still going to have difficult times for sure. And talk about like when you went through kind of that process of, you know, with your teacher of letting go of the ego and kind of letting go of the roles. Like, how was that for you as a dad? Um, you know, as that figure, as a husband, when you're unraveling, I am, you know, I'm not this, I am that. I think everything was just a, a weird void. I remember that year quite well. It was just a, a weird year. A lot of outer world chaos was happening as well. And I think that was a reflection of the inner world chaos that I was going through and that sense of loss. Um, my, a dog we had died. Um, which was a really di- difficult time. And uh, some family members were going through a difficult time. There was just a lot of chaos in that year and it was internal discombobulation and, you know, discomfort and external as well. And it was just, um, it was probably one of the toughest years of my life. So that's why I say to people, if you want to take that trajectory in your spiritual path, make sure you have a lot of support and guidance around you because it can be quite confronting for sure. 
until yeah, you get to the I other think... side and then you start going, oh, now I see it. Now I see it. I'm actually creating me, the divine, is actually creating all of this for me so that I can see that I'm not me. It's, it's just, just genius. This is brilliant. I, I get it now. I can see the matrix and I'm actually the designer of this process so that I can actually, there's nothing that I'm a victim to. It's actually me supporting me so I can realize absolute truth and see through the veil of illusion. Well, that's interesting. I mean, talk a little bit more because I feel like so many of us get stuck into that victim mentality. Some of us in a very big way, like we live every moment as the victim and some mm. of us just in ways that's even, it's hidden more. You don't even realize it, but you're playing victim at some point, you know, whether it's I'm so busy or my life is chaotic or everything's going wrong right now. I can't keep my head above water. Talk a little bit about that, of how we can change the perspective and understand what you're actually creating yourself. And look, when you're in that shit, nobody likes to hear that they're the reason some of it's happening. Yeah, that's because we're, the reason why they don't want to hear that is because, um, because when they're hearing it, they're hearing it that you, the ego, is creating that. And, and that's not the case. And that's, this is why I can get uncomfortable, particularly for the ego. The ego doesn't like to be blamed for things. Um, what, what you start to see is that at a much higher level, it's very hard for the ego to understand this. And so when we're trying to explain this to an ego construct, it, it really struggles with, with getting this because it can't get it. It's just too big. It's too high level. So what happens is that you, you experientially transcend the world of duality, form, phenomenon, space, time through your daily practice and through I'm not this, I'm that. And then eventually what happens is you start to experience the unified field and realize that that unified field has a beautiful maternal intelligence within it that is actually always guiding and supporting you to realize something that you're not realizing yet. And we're always in this process of waking up and, and becoming more self-realized, which is really becoming less of the ego. Again, that's that terminology becoming more. It's actually not really the case. Becoming more about becoming to, less. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. We're trying to explain it to an ego that can grasp it. Um, and so. Um, Sorry to interrupt, but I want to remind you of all of the courses and certifications that are here for you, you guys, starting Monday, Tarot 101. Any interest in tarot? Want to learn what all those cards mean? Want to start getting deeper and connect to it more? Tarot 101 is a great course, and it's only 11 weeks, and you learn so much. Sophia is incredible. We actually have an episode with her. You can go back in the stockpile, Sophia Knapp. So if you're interested, go to denmeditation.com and check it out. And again, don't forget, if that's not what is for you, we have Reiki Level 2 coming up and Psychic Mediumship also coming up. See you soon. When you start to look back through, through your own trajectory and go, every single part of that made sense now, even though it's, it's painful. So evolution, everything is better with evolution. Everything gets better with evolution. It's just that the process of everything getting better with evolution can be absolutely brutally painful at times. And <laughs> the analogy I like to use is that if little Johnny is playing with a knife in a PowerPoint socket and little Johnny is doing something that the mother knows is not good for its sustainability. And if the mother gives that child a warning, Johnny, please don't play with that knife socket. It's not a good thing for you to do. And my primary objective is that you live a better, healthier, happier life. And so if Johnny keeps playing with that knife socket, the mother is going to give it a couple of very stern warnings. And the final one will be, if you do that one more time, 
the wrath of mother will come down on you. Now, if Johnny <laughs> does that one more time, there will be huge ramifications and consequences, not because the mother um, wants to punish the child, not because the child's a horrible person, not because the child is just um, someone that deserves to be victimized because the mother loves it so dearly that it needs to somehow get this message across to the mm. child. This is not the pathway forward for you. And so I'm going to come down, I'm going to take the knife off you. If depending on the type of parent it is, it might give it a whack on the bum and it's going to remove it from its current scenario and it's going to put it in its room and deprive it of certain things. And this is also that the child will remember next time. Okay. I got it next time. Maybe I shouldn't do that. That's the ramifications, the karmic consequences, of that action was so negative that I think it's not worth me doing it next time, but it took a really mighty lesson for me to learn that. And so that maternal mother is divinity. Hmm. I love that. I love, I love that analogy. I think that's a beautiful analogy. And it's also interesting because I think when you get into the heart, you know, my partner and I were having this conversation last night because he was reading, I think the four agreements and, you know, when you start, when you read, you know, you embrace everything. You're like, you have to do everything exactly like this. And it's that question of parenting where really when you deal with shamans, the whole idea or any like spirituality, it's like you almost shouldn't parent at all. It should be, you know, a child comes and they learn their lessons on their own and it's a lot of this and eventually they find their path, but it has to be completely on their own. And it's one of those tricky things when you're the actual parent. Obviously, there's the overbearing where you make every decision for your child and you don't let them experience any life, right? And then there's a version of, well, can you guide and give some life lessons and help and, you know, just help pull out them, their version of who they are, but let them make, it's very tricky. Like, what are your, what's your take on like the eternal mother versus the actual mother yeah, <laughs> or father yeah. and what the involvement should be is as far as creating, you know, a life where someone, you know, isn't getting, you know, pummeled by shoulds and, you know, losing a sense of their own self because mm. they're now within the ego of other, the web of other people's egos. Mm. I think, um, you know, people ask me, you know, why don't I work with more kids? It's like, oh, kids aren't the problem. Kids are just, they learn through osmosis. They learn by being around parents. What we need to work on is the parents. And, you know, for us, Certainly I'm not a perfect parent, but one thing I said to my children was that they get to do whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. They want to do drugs. They want to drink. They can make any of those decisions they want. However, just know that every single action has a corresponding reaction and that every choice you make, you're the creator of that choice, the, the side of that choice. And, and there, there will always be an ensuing reaction to that decision you make. Now, the reaction that comes from that action um, might be bestowed upon you by a parent, my, myself or, or mum, or might be bestowed upon you by the police or your own, you know, let's just say you go out on a bender and drink a bottle of port. Just see how you feel the next day. You're going to feel horrendously sick. So listen to that communication, the karma of what follows from every action. If you help a lady cross the road with a nice, you know, with some shopping bags, and she gives you $5 because listen to that message, you know, goodwill action and bad will action um, has this karmic reaction to it. So, um, and that, they really understood that. And then they could start to see that intelligence in this law of cause and effect. And so, you know, um, they, they got to become more empowered with that in their decision-making processes. And as a result, I thought they felt that they, they grew up quite well as children.
That's interesting. I mean, my child's seven. So on the flip side, it's like, it's not drugs and drinking. It's like, hey, it's cold outside. And I always tell her like, it's cold out. Like, think, do you want the jacket or not? Nope. I'm like, okay, just know you may be cold. Your choice. Like, it's kind of the same thing. Like, she'll find the reaction and her choice will give her some sort of answer. Either it'll make her feel good or it won't. So when you talk about that now at these higher levels where, you know, it's like you said, drugs, drinking, you know, they're at a different age. And you, and you said one of the reactions, uh, responses could be from the parents. Do you have things set in place? Like you, are there rules in the house about that stuff or yeah, no? Absolutely. Like they can... Yeah, yeah, for sure. So a classic example to, to put into context and certainly with a seven-year-old child, um, you know, <laughs> up until a certain age, children haven't developed their brain enough, which is why we have parents and parents have to make decisions for children to some degree. Um, and that's because the, the, the frontal lobe and the rear lobe of the brain hasn't been fully established. I don't think it really establishes until the age of 2024, 20, which is why, you know, we don't let children vote for a certain age because they just haven't developed their decision-making process. And so that's why a lot of kids can make some silly decisions along the way. And we do need that parental guidance and supporting system there. It's not like I just said to my kids, go and do whatever you want and I'm not gonna keep a monitor on them. Um, it's just that do whatever you want, but know that there will be consequences and some of them will be from myself. And so a classic example was um, my son was a very, and is a very talented artist. Um, and he was really good at graffiti art. And we had three rules with his graffiti art. One was that um, he only ever did it when I was there. Cause if he got caught, I will take the hit for it. Um, and he would be okay. And there's some really severe laws for graffiti art in Australia. And the second one was we only do it on buildings that are gonna be knocked down. We never do it on a public domain that is, you know, someone's property or a public property. It's something that is an abandoned building that's obviously going to be knocked down and it'll be on a wall that at some point will be demolished. Um, and you only do artwork, you not no tagging. Tagging doesn't add any value. It doesn't contribute anything to society. You can do some artwork that might be appealing and potentially aesthetically pleasing. And you can video it, you can put it on your socials and it'll be in a place that maybe no one will see it anyway because it's an abandoned building. So these were the three rules. And then one day he was with his mates and they were doing urban exploring. It's called urban X, which is when kids try and explore up into buildings and get onto rooftops and stuff. And we kind of let them have a bit of free reign with the urban X cause it was okay. Um, wasn't really breaking laws. And um, one day they're on the top of a rooftop of a building and they were doing tagging with their markers where no one would see it. Um, and it was just on a rooftop and they came out of the fire escape of the building. And as they opened the fire escape and went onto the street, it just so happened that there was a paddy wagon, which is a police van, right out where the fire escape door was. And they opened the door and these five kids with backpacks come out of the fire escape and they see the police van and the police put their siren on, the boys ran and, and in the end, they, they stopped running, the police got them. And I get a call on a Sunday afternoon, are you the father of Taj Cronin? I said, yes, I am. And they said, well, he's in a prison cell right now in the police station, away from the police station on a Sunday afternoon. So I turned up there and there's four other dads that were looking very gray and ashen faced. And um, look, you know, it was quite a severe situation and uh, he got consequences from me, which was, and my wife, which was that, you know, he had his phone taken off him for a week and he was grounded and, um, you know, he, all these sort of, sort of ramifications that had to be part of a guidance system and a supporting system. And I explained to him that these were bestowed upon him from a loving space to support him with doing things that are supposed to be right and not wrong. And I said also, just remember that this karmic law, it's not something that mum and dad are enforcing. It's a universal intelligence that's watching over you. And so it wasn't a mistake that the paddy wagon was there. 
just know that you're always being watched. Divinity is watching and it's got this constant ability to guide and support you into making better decisions. And you have to learn karmically when you make a wrong decision so that we can learn how to make a better decision next time. And so there was some pretty severe consequences that came with that um, mix up because he had the three rules, you know, the, the four agreements. We had three agreements with the graffiti and he, he, he didn't follow them. And so there was obviously a karmic consequence from that. I love that. I'm so glad we spoke about this because I think that's really beautiful. It's like you you see who he is, you see where his talents are, and you give him freedom within it with some constraints mm. of how it's going to work. I, I thought that's really, really smart. That's so, and by the way, what a great story. I love that they open up the door and it's like, <laughs> wee, wee, wee. <laughs> so perfectly designed. <laughs> oh, we all have moments like that as teens. Totally. Like just so it's funny. It's something just so dumb that it's like, oh my God, all of us, and we're all going to do it. So <laughs> yeah. that's really funny, but it's true. It's just was an interesting question because we were talking about it last night and he's kind of more really starting kind of this journey. So for him, he's like, no, you know, you listen to all of it. I'm like, and it, it was that I kind of answered how you did where it's like, how can we help be a guidance system? Mm. But ultimately, yes, it's theirs to fail, fall, rise, yeah. go sideways, flip around, like however life takes them. Cause I mean, you can only control so much. Like my child is adopted and people always, you know, ask me, well, what does she know? What does she know? And I'm like, she knows everything. And from when she was little, I tell her everything. And as she gets older and she can comprehend more and ask more questions, she learns more. Um, mm. There's never been anything kept from her. And people are like, well, that's so amazing. She's going to have zero issues with being adopted. <laughs> and I said, I mean, I'm doing what I think is the best. But if she was put on this earth to have abandonment issues or not feel good enough, well, she's going to have those regardless, whatever I do. Like it's, yeah. she's going to have them and that's going to be something she's going to struggle with. I'm doing my best to alleviate it as much as possible. But like, we all have that journey that we kind of have to go through. Like you said, they're watching and they're going to like, you know, ping pong you a little bit until, <laughs> yeah. until you get it. But I always found that interesting. I'm like, I'm doing the best I can, but if that's her, if, you know, sometimes if someone's meant to be an addict, like, because they have to learn lessons through that addiction, mm -hmm. I don't know. As a parent, yeah. I'm sure you feel that too, having experienced things with drugs. Like you're like, you want to do everything you can to hopefully steer people not in that direction. But like you said, there's only mm. so much you can do. Yeah. We, we all have a journey that is there to in some way, shape or form, help us realize something that we're not realizing. I had a client the other day that <clears throat> came to me wanting to get some coaching sessions and he was going through a divorce and was really bleak and really dark and really miserable and just couldn't stop crying. And I said, you know, you're, you're missing the point here. This is not happening to you this is happening so you can realize something you're not realizing and his whole it was like this epiphany moment it's like oh my goodness i can see it now and he realized that he, he wasn't a victim to circumstances he was given some guidance system to help him realize something that he'd been ignoring for a long time and he started many many years ago with a spiritual practice and completely ignored it through the whole length of his marriage because he's got a marriage now and he doesn't need spiritual practice he's got a woman in his life and i said you know you, you they have to take away the thing that was distracting you by the looks of it, because you need to get back to your journey. And you've forgotten that for a long time. And it was just like, okay, now I'm realized what I'm here for and what this journey is all about. And it's funny when you get that ability to have some distance or like get a little higher from it, then like all the puzzle pieces make so much sense. Yeah. You know, as we get closer, cause I know I've, I've kept you for a little bit. And before we get to your personal practice, you know, I, I watched the portal 
much a while ago and then I rewatched it because we were originally going to have you on, um, which is such a beautiful movie of different people's journeys of, you know, getting towards meditation and how it has really shifted them. But, and I'm sure you get this a lot. The rabbi for me was so impactful. Um, and, and, and not just because I'm Jewish, <laughs> but just because, I mean, his journey and his outlook and his perspective was so stunning. And so this is a man who um, had a very severe stroke. And I, I'm going to read this because otherwise I'll um, mess it up. But, you know, he said the words, I'm so grateful I didn't die so I could learn this. Mm. That to me got me in my heart because, or my spirit not even heart, I should say it was more like my belly because it was that first moment where I was like, oh, wow, that just exposed a lot of my own weakness mm. because that it did. It was, yeah. I was really aware of my own weakness in that moment because I was like, that is some serious strength. He so clearly through this saw what you were just talking about, why he was being given this situation. And he, he so to the depths of being okay, kind of, you know, losing again, it's, he got rid of that ego because he lost all of these constructs of what we would all deem like survival or what we would need to just feel okay. And he lost so many of them and only gained so much more just to bring this whole conversation full circle. But, um, when he said those words, I was like, Oh shit. Again, it's like when you said it in the beginning, I was like, wow, when you really think about that deconstruction, like truly think about allowing yourself to get into that deconstruction. I mean, this is to the point, this man, everything had to slow down. His entire life slowed down. And you can tell he's a, you could tell he was brilliant pre and brilliant now. Um, I found that such a powerful statement of, I'm so glad I didn't die because there's so many other people in that position that would have wished to have died when the stroke happened so that they weren't you know, in a place where it was hard to talk or everything was slow and they probably felt a little more stuck in the body. It, it's, yeah. Talk, talk to me a little bit, A, about that. It's a little bit of the decomposition, but two, did you, I know you produced the movie. Did you actually meet with him? Did you ever talk with him? Because I had a lot there of was... conversations with Ronnie. I didn't get to be there in Montreal when they videoed him. Um, I, we filmed across the USA with those stories and, and the team broke away to do the Montreal trip. Um, mm -hmm. It was just Jackie, the director, and the DOP, um, the camera guy, and the sound guy. And, um, you know, Ronnie's such an incredible human being that one thing we loved about his story, we were always looking for an oracle in the film or a, a sort of a voice. We originally were looking to get a, a, a little girl that was going to be this sort of wise sage that would drop little insights throughout the film. But when we came across Ronnie, it was like, oh, he's the oracle. Oh. Um, I mean, but he is. to lose the thing that we value the most, which is the use of our body and still exude such luminosity and such consciousness and to realize that we aren't the body, you know, the whole point of the film was to show that crisis isn't actually something to victimize us of. It's actually something that we can learn through and meditation really mm -hmm. helps us with that. It doesn't say it's the only thing, but it's the one thing we wanted to focus on as a mechanism, a portal through to a realization that I'm not the crisis and I'm not the victim in the crisis. I'm consciousness trying to realize itself through the crisis and meditation is a tool to help me do that. And there's other, lots of other tools like Kundalini yoga and plant medicine and all other things. We just wanted to drill down into that one. But, um, I loved the, that, that, that's that amazing state that Ronnie would be in 
you know, through the one of the most difficult times anyone could possibly imagine and to still live and breathe such wisdom and such clarity and such calmness and such lovingness, you know, this beautiful lovingness comes out of this man. And that's really why we wanted to get that um, message out to the world that we, we, that's the essence of who we are with or without the body. And it's, it's so stunning and heartfelt. He also said being for him saying, being able to connect and being understood has to be first. What do you think of the being understood part? When, what do you think he meant by that? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, I always it sort is. of wondered about the ambiguity of that line. Um, <laughs> Welcome to me asking the question about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because um, I, I, I still, even when I see it, sometimes now if I ever watch the film, I, I think, I wonder what he means by that. You know, why is it so important that we're understood? And, um, and why I, does he feel he's more understood now? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I haven't really got full clarity around that, to be honest with you. And it's something, it's one of the lines in the film, and it's interesting you brought up, because one of the lines in the film that I haven't really been able to fully grasp, and I think it's something that probably I need to have a conversation with Ronnie about, because um, I know what he says afterwards, especially for a rabbi, um, which is in the film. So why is that so important that you're understood, particularly as a rabbi? Um, because it, it, it felt like there's a little bit of, and with absolute, a grace and gratitude that, that there's a little bit of ego in that and that's okay. Um, why do we need to be understood? I, I think there's sometimes we can be misunderstood and that can be challenging. Mm. And I wonder if it's also now that we're just chatting, if it's also in the simplicity, like you said, some being given the chance, like he was, he physically was given the chance as well as obviously going through this whole process of letting go of that ego of, getting down to nothing in order to be everything. So mm. I wonder if in him feeling like, like maybe part of it's also him understanding himself and therefore yeah. now can be understood because there's like this, he's, he's down to it. There's none of those constructs in between that's kind of getting in the way of who he is or who you may think he is. And while you're talking, very I'm thinking, powerful. What, yeah, while you're talking, I'm thinking, what does it actually even mean under, to understand someone or to be understood? It's mm -hmm. really interesting. We, you know, we've never, I've never really deconstructed and thought much about what that word means to be understood, what those words mean. Um, but it's really interesting when you start thinking about it. Um, do I feel understood and what does it mean if I'm not understood? And um, there was a great podcast recently I was listening to about language and how um, the, the implications of someone hearing something or reading something from someone in an email or a post or a phone call and, and having misinterpreted from what they've said, I've got, you know, this can happen with friendships, you know, where you can say something which can have implications or be implied in another way and it could be misunderstood and that can have a ripple effect on a relationship for many, many years to come. So it's a, it's a, it's an area that's very gray, you know, how we can be misunderstood through a number of different ways. And there's yeah. probably people listening to this podcast that might misunderstand me or, or might interpret something <laughs> and hear it in a very different way. And that's probably pissing someone off right now. Who knows? And we're always pissing someone off is what I've learned, right? <laughs> Someone's always pissed off someone. Always, I mean, it's like, that's, I do. I look, he, he's a, it's a beautiful character. Cause I, and I love that we're talking about him right now because, or person, not a character, but a character in your film, but a human. Um, I love that we're talking about him and I love, because I do feel like it's so fascinating. You know, we had no agenda with this conversation, but we talked a lot about kind of, you know, 
our true essence that is so f- much further beneath, I think, what a lot of us realize. And because we have so many layers that are keeping us from it, even though it's right there. And like, as you said in the beginning, it has everything. You don't need anything more than that. And he's such a beautiful example of any of those layers. And he was probably, you know, such a spiritual person to begin with as a rabbi. Um, And it just shows you how we're all working constantly. And we're all, it's not, you know, kind of what we said in the beginning too, just because someone works in the wellness space or is a spiritual guy does not mean they've got it all figured out at all times. Like they're, I always kind of describe it as like tunnels. Like you constantly, you know, you get to go into a tunnel of yours and you get into that tunnel and sometimes it doesn't feel great. Sometimes it's tight and cold and you're going through it and you're going through it. And then you get to like some amazing vista, whether it's in like the crystal cave or a view and you get to enjoy it. And sometimes you get to enjoy it for you know, two years, you're in a great place. Sometimes it's like two months, sometimes it's two weeks, you know, and then also you get pulled into that next tunnel. Like you just don't know. And they're all different size tunnels. They're all different lengths. Some are like easier, a little wider, some are tighter, you know, and all the vistas, like I said, some are longer, some are shorter, but we're all constantly getting sucked into our own tunnels of growth and learning and understanding. And I think when you see a rabbi who I'm sure has already done so much beautiful work, kind of gets stripped down even more. And then he's yeah. having his greatest epiphanies. It's yeah, there's a beautiful film with um, Ram Das called Going Home. And it's about his journey with the stroke. And um, they're interviewing him in his beautiful home in, in Hawaii. And he said, you know, the, the stroke has, has enabled him to go even further and deeper into the stillness and silence. And I was thinking, wow, you know, this guy has been so enlightened and he's still unraveling, still unpacking, still deepening. Um, and it took him to, you know, be confined to a wheelchair after his stroke to start to go deeper into the stillness and silence. I thought there's so, I remember my teacher telling me about Zeno's paradox. Zeno is an Italian mathematician and he was referring to Zeno's paradox in that they, so if you take, um, a, a, I don't know if you guys use a meter in America, hundred centimeters, um, a half of a meter is 50 centimeters and half of 50 centimeters is 25 centimeters. Half of 25 centimeters is 12 and a half centimeters half of 12 and a half centimeters is seven and a quarter centimeters. And you can keep going half and half and half and half and half and half and half. And you actually never get there. And Zeno's paradox is that you actually never get there because there's always an incremental half of half of a half of a half of a half. <laughs> and so the, this is in reference to enlightenment is that as a human, you can never really fully get there. There's an infinite, infinite degree of refinement mm. going on at all times. And so, when I heard that from Ram Das, who what I always considered one of the most, gosh, many years of his journey, one of the most enlightened people, to still have infinite degrees of refinement happening at his point in his journey, I was just like, okay, so just surrender to that, that there's always going to be some unraveling and unpacking. I kind of like it because I, like you said, when you get to the other side of whatever that specific thing is at that time, it's such a awesome feeling. And it's, 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 Mm. you feel the expansion and right. Like I said, sometimes you get to sit in that expansion for a while. Sometimes it's not so long before you go into another one. Um, but it's, I, I, you know, I always try and tell my students instead of feeling that constriction as like a warning of escape or, ugh, like look at it as the alarm bell of like, yay, you get to go and do this and you're about (laughs) to get somewhere great, you know, know that there is that other side you know, there's no promises how long it takes you to get there, but there is that other side. And when you get there, it's fantastic. Yes, I think you can get there and have this incredible, profound, liberated 
freeing experience of pure bliss, pure divinity. And then, um, you know, you might be on retreat or you might be in some beautiful exotic location and you have to get the plane home and you're running late for the plane and you're in a traffic jam and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to miss the plane. And it's just like, that's all gone now. <laughs> it's, it is amazing how fast I know. Like I was we can I was have saying. a different, different viewpoint on how to peel potatoes with your wife. Why are you peeling them that way? I know, I know. Rip you out of out of unity consciousness right. and out of enlightenment. <laughs> and sometimes it's I think we should use this paint like, for wow. our new kitchen. No, no, no. I think we should use this paint. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, okay, time to do more practice. Yeah. Uh, you're amazing. I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. This yeah, was wonderful. I'm excited you're going to lead um, everyone in a personal practice, five to 10 minute meditation, which is great, which we'll get to in a second. But I wanted to say thank you so much. If there's anything, you know, if you want to drop any website or any information or any programs that you have that you want to promote, please do so here now. I would love for people to hear about them because um, you're such a beautiful teacher and you have such a great way of speaking that I feel like brings big concepts into nuggets that are very mm, digestible. Thanks. Well, I'm really excited to be launching very soon um, my group coaching program called Zen Academy for Transformational Leadership. And what it is, it's a 12-week program to really support more conscious leaders getting their message out to the world. So that's healers, teachers, um, you know, authors, coaches, speakers that really are looking to create impact in the world. And it helps them with their website, with their social media, with, uh, you know, their business model, with their mindset, with running retreats, getting books published, setting up coaching programs, running workshops, anything and everything over this 12-week window. So it's really about helping and supporting this huge wave of conscious leaders that are coming into the world who are struggling a little bit financially, struggling a little bit with getting their message out to the world, struggling a little bit with the fear of being seen. So it addresses a lot of different things very practically, but also very spiritually. And um, I'm really excited. We'll bring that out very early on in 2023. And so what we'll do is we'll give a link. I'll give you a link where they can actually download the, the PDF, which is a, a free seven-step guide to creating that um that sort of conscious leadership business model and they can just get that for free if that's all they want they can just get that and that should help them to start with anyway great thank you i love it that's awesome and very needed very needed it is hard um yeah. well thank you thank you for being here like i said everyone stay tuned because we're going to do a personal practice but i really appreciate this conversation i enjoyed it very much thank you i class myself included So now Tom's going to lead us in a gentle breath meditation for his personal practice. All right. So it's a very simple practice, this one. And all we need to do is just sit in a chair and you can have your feet on the ground, hands in your lap. You don't have to be Lotus or with hands in mudras or anything fancy, just basically the most comfortable position you have to um, be able to get into a deep state of restfulness. Now the practice is very easy to teach and it's actually very easy and simple to do but it can be very hard to maintain because the mind doesn't want to be still. It doesn't want to focus on one thing. So what you're going to notice through the meditation is some resistance in the mind to do what you're asking it to do because we're going to get the mind to focus on one thing. So the mind will continually move away looking for things that are more charming, more pleasant. And that's what it's been doing all day long. And it's been devouring and analyzing a lot of information through the day. And so we're going to get it to come to one single point. And it's going to take a lot of discipline and a lot of authority. And so there can be some resistance, a little bit of conflict between the mind wanting to go in a direction and you bringing it back. So just surrender to the process that it might be challenging, it might be difficult, but it's very beneficial. And so um, 
with that, the practice is not about can you keep your mind still? The practice is can you keep bringing the mind back to the single point? It's that returning the mind back to the single point is your meditation, not whether or not you've got your mind still, because that's probably not going to happen. Okay, so very simply, let's just close our eyes. Now with our eyes closed, we'll notice that there's a very effortless breath that's moving in and out of your body. And that breath has been there from the moment you were born, day and night, 24-7. It's a very simple ebb and flow that moves in and out of your body. Now as the breath moves in and out of your body, I want you to notice how it is passing through your nostrils. And as the breath passes through the nostrils, I want you to notice that there's a very slight cooling effect around the rim of the nostril. What's happening here is the air is brushing some moisture on the skin inside the nostril. And it's a very subtle cooling that's going on as the air brushes that moisture on the skin and that moisture cools the skin as the air brushes up against it. And what's happening here is just a subtle awareness of this. I want you to keep your attention on that cooling skin around the rim of the nostril. Whenever the mind drifts away, we continue to bring it back to that one single point. Like I said, the mind will go looking for things that are more charming. And what we do here is just keep bringing it back time and time again to that one point, the cool skin around the rim of the nostril. And it's okay if it's uncomfortable. This is our practice. Very effortless breath, not a forced breath, just the natural ebb and flow of the body.
Whenever the mind drifts away, bringing it back. Just focusing on the cooling skin around the rim of the nostril. Letting go of everything outside of us, letting go of the world around us, letting go of the future or the past, really surrendering into this one single awareness. Just stay with us a little bit longer now. And when you're ready, just letting go of the meditation. And then slowly opening the eyes, coming back. So it's a really simple meditation that you can embrace on a daily basis. If ever you're feeling a little bit frazzled or a bit overwhelmed or you can't sleep, just really simple, just sit in a chair, close the eyes and just continue to bring that mind back to that single point. What you'll find is that it might be uncomfortable for sure, but at the end of it, um, and it's not so much what happens in meditation, a lot of people get very attached to what's happening in meditation. It's more about how you feel after the meditation and what you'll find is that your nervous system will be calmed down, your mind will be quieter, and you'll just be a lot more relaxed and more cohesive. Hope that helps.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.